The following lecture was delivered at the 13th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Providence, Rhode Island, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Shalom Paltiel will now present his lecture, Repetition and Restriction in Judaism. So this fellow tells me, Judaism, it's all about R&R. I'm thinking, well, wow, that's great. It's a big compliment. He says, yeah, repetition and restriction. That's not quite the R&R that we're looking for, Rabbi. You know, it's a wonderful thing and everything else. It's got some nice bonuses, but this R&R business, it's like a little bit ridiculous. You know, let's talk about the repetition first. Basically, we do the same things over and over and over and over and over. So every day we're saying the same Shema. Can we change it up a little? Every, uh, every year we read the same Torah cycle. We go around the whole thing. We come right back to the beginning. Um, you know, three times a day we got the same prayers. And every Shabbat we got the same candles. And uh, then who comes to Sukkot with the Lulav. It's just a constant over and over and over again. How many people would choose the same vacation spot over and over? Or the same restaurant or the same car model? You know, we change it up a little bit. You know, uh, how many people would read the same book year after year after year? And if you really love a book, most of the time you read a book, you're done. Even if it's a good book, that was really good. It's wonderful. If it's really good, you might say, you know, you make a mental note that I'll pick it up again in three years or in ten years because it's awesome. i got to read it one more time. You know, it's on my bucket list. No, every year, the same book. What's it about? Hardly seems to be uh, interesting. You know, life is change, excitement. Even the retreat, they don't do it in the same place every year. You go somewhere else. I mean, that's how human beings are. You know, you wear a different shirt. It's not the same. So, friends, in most things in life, vast majority of things in life, that's how it is, especially hobbies, things that we have options about. Yeah, you change it. Make it interesting. But the most important things don't change. For example... Hopefully, from the day you're born till the day you die, you're still you. And one of the most important things about us that never change, that we want should be as consistent as possible, is our heartbeat. We want it to be boring. Every time you go to a cardiologist, give me the cardiogram, it's the same. Doc, it's the same as last month? Come on! Can we have some excitement? No. Give me that boring thing. As they say in Yiddish, for 120 years. The same nonsense. Boom, ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. I don't want up, I don't want down. Just keep it flowing. So apparently, when it comes to hobbies and excitement, we do want change. When it comes to life itself, it's about consistency. Judaism is not a hobby, even though it fulfills and it gives joy and it gives a lot of things and we, that, that, that seem like hobbies and they're wonderful and a lot of added-ons that make life special. But nominally and in essence, Judaism is the breath of life. It's our ongoing soul's connection to God. It can't change. Just like you'll be you for the rest of your life. Yiddishkeit is your breath. And every day we say the Shema. We pray three times if we're able to or whatever level we're at. And every Shabbat, it's a rhythm. It's life. It's constant. It's consistent. We don't want too much change. Just a PS on that, that even though the cardiogram and life hopefully is the same in terms of its essential breath of life every single day, what we do with that breath changes. 
And hopefully every day or once in a while we go on exciting trips, and retreats, we see interesting things, we observe life anew each day as we mature and grow, even as it's the same me in the same breath. Similarly, yes, we do the same Shabbat candles every Friday night. Hopefully, the ideal is that we can aspire to and probably even accomplish. Each time it's a little different, and maybe not each time, but once in a while we feel, wow, this Shabbat candles was unique. Today's tefillin was different. I tell people, you can't afford to miss tefillin. You can't afford to miss your candle. Why not? I've been doing it all along, and God has millions of them. But God only has one of yours today. So yes, in a sense, it is new. Just like the breath of life is experienced with new experiences each day. We don't just do the same things each day. We mature, we grow, we observe and absorb life in a renewed and a more special way. Similarly, each time we light the candles, hopefully each time we do our prayers, uh, we have a deeper appreciation of it because each day we mature, right? If you're, if, if you're sitting here, you're a thinking, focused human being. And uh, that means that each day or each week or each month, we grow. By the way, growing doesn't always mean up. Growing is a little bit like the, like the stock market, you know. The Alta Rebbe quotes in Tanya, Sheva Yipol Tzadik become a verse from, uh, from the prophets. It's a good person rises and falls seven times. So part of growth is regression because that's how it goes. One step back, a few steps forward because part of growth is, you know, uh, we're fulfilled. We need more. So we seem, tend to slip. Ever have that? You know, a person is growing in their Yiddish guy, their Chabad rabbi in Rebetzin is getting them excited. They're doing more mitzvot. And at a certain point, they plateau. And they're almost like bored because they need more. And for a short period, they might almost slip and fall back and, and, and not be as scrupulous in certain mitzvot that they've been doing for five years. But that's not a step backwards. It's really just preparing for the next level. And they'll come to the rabbi or Rebetzin and they'll say, sure, you've been doing this. Now you need to, you're ready for the next one. You want more. You're not a table. You're not a chair. You're a human being. You're a mind. You're a heart. You're a soul. And you've mastered that mitzvah. You appreciate that mitzvah. You want more. You want a deeper appreciation of it. So, um, again, the mitzvot remain the same, just like the breath of life should be the same. Even as we experience the mitzvot, hopefully from time to time, in a whole different way, even as they're exactly the same. Many of us might have experienced that, you know, you read the Torah every year and you come back to the same Torah portion and the story of Exodus suddenly has a whole new meaning. Maybe it's personal, personal exodus, personal redemption. Maybe the splitting of the sea this year means seeing potential that I can't see. Whatever. Over time, the same storyline has a whole different meaning. But the breath of life will always remain the same. So when you tell yourself, why is it so repetitious? And let's change it up. And there have been efforts, right? People looking to come up with creative things to make Judaism more colorful. Again, beyond the laws, we can. There's customs. It's all wonderful. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, colorful sukkahs and uh, wonderful lula bags and whatever. Menorahs on bicycles. That's all wonderful. But in terms of the actual menorah, the sukkah, the rules and the dimensions and the, the actual setup will remain exactly the same. And when that bothers you or me, who recognize this is the breath of life, God said, this is, this is, as the language is, the Torah, it's your life and the length of your days. And it's going to be the same. It doesn't change. I heard a wonderful story from a fellow who became a Baal Teshuvah as a young adult, grew up in an affluent family. He was the only child. And um, 
even in uh, middle school, we started thinking about the meaning. Obviously, smart turned out to be very, very bright uh, human being. But and um, ended up as early 20s, college, early 20s. He became a full-fledged Balchuva, and he's actually a rabbi. He's not only a rabbi; he's a rabbi's rabbi. So he once said the following thing. He said, "Do you know what brought me to Judaism? My fish." Not to get filter fish. What do you mean? He said, you know, I'm a kid. I'm an only child. My parents love me. They want to take care of me. You know, I was born late in life. And they're affluent, but I'm the only child. So they got me a brother, a little fish. I even named him. I called him Jack. And in the back of the house, we had a pond. Beautiful house and a big, beautiful pond, maybe the size of this room. And, uh, and every day I come home from school, I'd run right out to Jack and play with my little my brother, and he'd be swimming back and forth and back and forth. And every day I'd come back and visit him, and it's wonderful. And then one day, and then when it came Hanukkah time, I'd bring out my toys, I'd show him my fire truck, I'd show him my new remote control uh, helicopters. You know what I mean? He says I'm two years old, I'm three years old, I'm four years old. And one day it bothered me. It's not fair. Jack's just sitting there, going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and I'm out here and I got new toys and I'm running around, I'm climbing the trees and my new swing set I gotta share it with Jack so I went and got all my best toys I put them right at the side of the pond I fetched Jack out with one swoop, I put him right on the side of the pool I said Jack look at what I got brother and suddenly Jack got excited for the first time. I saw some life. He's always so boring. He looks so bored. He looks like he's just so repetitious. He's going back and forth. Nebuch, Shachris, Mincha, Maidiv, Shul, morning, Minion, Shabbos, candles, this. He starts jumping. That fish, this Yankel. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's flying up. Four or five feet in the air. It's unbelievable. I was so excited. I'm cheering him on for four or five minutes. Said, Way to go, Jack. Now you know life is about a fire. I'm glad I finally realized that I can give you more than what you've been having. And then he runs into the house and says, Mom, Mom, Ema, you can't believe it. I took Jack out. And he's playing with my toys. You what? I took him out and he's so excited. It's, it's the best day of his life. And Ema runs out. By the time she got there, it was too late. It made a very strong impression. This is a true story. But it changed the life of a rabbi, of a man who's now impacted. Uh, I'm an I'm an FFB. You know what that means? From from birth Chabad rabbi. My great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was the first Rebbe's brother. And I consult with that rabbi, who's 10 years younger than me, and became Torah observant at the age of 19 or 20, Never spent a day in a yeshiva until post-college, and I call him one of my rabbis. So that fish accomplished its mission. But apparently that sad day, it made such an impression on this four- or five-year-old kid, and somehow it stayed with him. And as he started growing and thinking and living in this affluent neighborhood where everybody's running after materialistic stuff, which is wonderful as an extra, but it's not life itself, right? It doesn't really fulfill and uh, it's like the margarine. If you have a lot of focus on materialism without meaning, it's like margarine without bread. Ugh. But if you have a wonderful, meaningful spiritual life and a life relationship with God and family, then obviously the comforts of life are fantastic. A few extra shekels is wonderful. You can afford a retreat like this <laughs> and stuff like that. But 
That's the, that's the margarine on the bread. And uh, what happened was at some point in life, and he's in high school, and he's, and he's going to college, and he's seeing everybody is jumping and running and looking for excitement, jumping out of buildings, partying, drinking, getting high, swinging, changing in their wives a couple times here and there and everywhere. And, he's, and he said, hey, this is not life. And the Chabad rabbi down the block and the Frumajids and the more moral people living the Torah lifestyle and the good lifestyle are the monotonous, boring ones. Uh-uh. What I'm seeing in this excitement in college and in the fraternity and whatever and in the college and the uh, spring breaks and everything else that goes on, what I'm seeing is people gasping for some air. They feel like they're dying. They feel like there's no meaning. There's, no, there's nothing. I'm dying. Please give me life. I want to feel like I'm alive. I'm jumping out of a plane. I'm jumping out of, a, of anything. You know what I mean? I'll try anything with anyone, wherever, whomever, whatever. Because otherwise I feel like I don't exist. That's not life. That's gasping for life. That's like a semi-death. Whereas a person can be living and organized. Let's call it boring, even though it doesn't have to be. I don't have to explain that again. But repetitious life. Old-fashioned, he's got one wife, and he's got, he's got one wife. He didn't trade her in for a new model. Wow. And, uh, and, he's, and, he's, and he's got a family, and his life is about his family. His life is about his Yiddish God. His life is about his tzedakah. His life is about his hard work every single day or studies if he's in school. And it's just a living, connecting to Hashem in the best way, that breath of life, whether it's prayers, morning, evening, Shema, Tzitzis, Tefillin, Shabbos candles, kosher, mikvah, just a cycle, the same old book. What's this portion? It's, uh, it's Re'eh, great. You did it 20 times before. Yeah, but it's, this is efficient water. It's efficient water. Don't get better. Let's leave Jack well alone. So that's the first R of R and R, the repetition. What about the restriction? What about the restrictions? Okay, so God wants us to do certain things, etc. I get the repetition a little bit. Anything real will, in a sense, be cyclical. But restrictions? You know, God is infinite the last time we checked. And we studied Tanya. We found out that God is beyond infinity and, and everything is possible. You know, the opposites are possible and it's, it's unbelievable. God is miracle and beyond. And we're told, you've got to light your candles at uh, 422. <laughs> it's like ridiculous. This doesn't feel like it's emancipating. It doesn't feel like it's transcendent. It doesn't feel spiritual. It doesn't feel like I'm touching the divine. It feels like I'm climbing into a little hole, a little box. If Judaism is supposed to be liberating, so I like to call the R&R, which I, the R&R of Judaism is rejuvenation with a J-E-W. Refocus. It's, and, but why the rules? And they're down to the detail. If you don't believe me, get yourself a book called The Code of Jewish Law. And it's not a bad book, by the way. I'm a Chabad rabbi, and I understand that many of my people, almost all of them are on different levels of the journey, and and uh, they know more than they're doing at any given time. It's probably true about myself, too. They're more inspired than is actually happening in, in, in actual fact. But recently, we made a Torah class in the book of Code of Jewish Law, and we're studying minutia. 
You know, which parts of the prayer can you interrupt? And if you walk in late, which amens could you say and not say? And, uh, and et cetera, the details of Shabbat, you know, what is not movable if it's a rock and if it's a watch. And they look at me like, and they, they say, Rabbi, you're not naive to think that we're doing all of these things. I mean, some are doing more than others. And I said, let's just study. And after four or five, six months that we're doing it, they're saying, you know, but it's good to know. It's like everything else. Once you know, you aspire to more. You know, as much as, you know, a Chabad rabbi will tell you the most important book is the Tanya and the prayer book and the spiritual connections. It's true. But there's another very important book to put on your shelf, and that's called the abridged version of the Code of Jewish Law. It's one book. Just read it. It's not a lot. It's not a lot. Go through it from time to time so you know the laws. And then over time, you say, hey, if I have a choice, let me do a little more. And over time, I'll grow. But no question, there are tremendous restrictions. You know, the tefillin have to be square. You ever saw somebody uh, shop for an esrug? You know, and you walk into the store and this is, a, you know, you walk into your Chabad house and somebody who's never seen it, you say, watch my esrog, it's a $250 esrog. <laughs> what? <laughs> I can get you for $1.59 a dozen, it's a pound. <laughs> Come with me, let me show you. You take them down to Borough Park or Kingston Avenue and Crown Heights and people are standing there looking at the esrog. And these are intelligent people. These are not idiots. What do you say? Is this something? What about that? It's the Emmas, right? I saw it by the Rebbe. It was very inspiring to me because as a young person, as a young person, I like to think of myself as a Baltruva myself. I think everyone in this generation is a Baltruva. I don't care if you're FFB because the world is so open. You can really do whatever you want. I don't care where you were raised. And at a certain point, you make a choice to buy in. To, and I remember the you know, years, 11, 12, 13 years old, 14, 15, 18, and I started to have um, you know, a more appreciation of the Rebbe and uh, studying the Rebbe's wisdom, which is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It blows the mind. Um, I still spend 90 minutes a day studying the Rebbe's teachings, and it blows my mind. It's like, and I'm not brilliant, but it just fills my capacity I say, wow, what a mind. Side little bad joke. Uh, two, two guys are out hunting. And uh, as they're out there in the middle of nowhere, suddenly they're out hunting or hiking, hiking. Suddenly they see a bear. So one of them bends down to tie his sneakers laces. So the friend says, what are you doing? You think you can outrun the bear? He said, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. It's bad, right? It's not bad. It's okay. We won't tell anybody. Keep it in this room. But the point is, I tell, I tell myself, I tell myself by spending time in Torah study, and a lot of my study is the Rebbe's teachings, because he's the Rebbe of our time, and I think that he is the message for our time. Uh, but any Torah study, what it does is, it fills my mind. I don't have to outrun Albert Einstein. I don't have to be brilliant. I just have to realize the brilliance of Torah is equal and surpasses little b. When I study an idea of Torah, an idea from the Talmud, or an idea of the Rebbe's, and I'm like, wow! What Jay likes to call, aha! Then that's it, I'm in. But then as I was growing up, I'm going back, I got off track a second. 
as I'm 14, 15, 16, and, and my little mind, but I'm starting to see, I'm looking at a genius when I'm looking at the Rebbe. For lack of a better term, I'm looking at a mind that knows it all and, and inspires in such a way that's so brilliant and makes so much sense. And then he comes into Shul, and it's Sukkot, and the same giant scholar is shaking the lulav so meticulously. Like the whole world depends on every move. So obviously you realize there's something about this, the restrictions, the details. What is it all about? So I was asked once by a high school kid. He said, Rabbi, tell me something. How come you religious people seem to have a certain sense of happiness and a sense of, 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 of well-being when you have so many restrictions? We living, you know, in the free world, in the secular world, we can pretty much do whatever we want. And yet, it's hard to really find that inner joy and contentment. How do you reconcile it? We can do whatever we want. We're supposed to be happy. We're like free. You guys are like in a straitjacket. You've got to run. It's 8 o'clock. It's 4 o'clock. It's 2 o'clock. So I said to this fellow, it's like came to me, and I've since repeated so many times, I think it's it helps. I said, can you ponder the difference between driving a car on the highway and driving a car in an arcade? Uh, he said, oh, yeah, I love arcades. But, Rabbi, how could you compare? What do you mean this is real and this is fake? I said, yeah, but, you know, today's arcades, they have wonderful features. You get in there, you get in the seat, it's a leather seat, you strap yourself in, and you rev up the motor, and as you rev up, the fans blow, you're here in the wind as if it's real. You roll down the window, the cop pulls you over. Have you seen this stuff? I mean, their chairs bending like this. Woo! I mean, it's a whole experience. They pull you over, they let you go, you pull into the garage, you get into the store. The whole geschichte. I said to him, what's really the difference? I'm hacking him. And he's looking at me, Rabbi, what's, what's your point? So I said, look, I said, if you're driving in an arcade, because it's fake, you can really do whatever you want. There are no rules. You can drive down the highway at 200 miles an hour. You can actually go in the other direction and try to snake through traffic. You can actually drive into the billboard and come out on the other end see if you can land on the highway. Go for it. There's no harm done because it's not real. It doesn't matter, and therefore you can do whatever you want. You're driving down, let's call it the 95, and you're going 70 miles an hour. Your every move can spell life or death. Oh, baby, you have restrictions. You better watch that road. Don't doze off. Don't text. Friends, don't text. Don't. That's an order. <laughs> Because every move can mean life and death because, friends, it's real. So I said to the young man, I said, there's two views on life. There's only two. Some people see life as one big arcade game. We're here to have fun. We're random. We're a biological accident. We happen to show up. No one knows that we're here. No one knows our name. It wouldn't really matter whether or not we've showed up on the scene. It's just a game. And the only question that matters as I'm roaming the arcade of life is how many tokens do I have left? And in a sense, I got total freedom. I can do whatever I want because it's an arcade. But how depressing a thought that my whole life is just make-believe. It's not going to fulfill me. I can do whatever I want, but I know I don't matter. And that's for sure. Conversely, if I embrace a life of Torah, of Yiddishkeit, of fear of heaven, for a non-Jew too, the seven no-eyed laws, and living a correct spiritual moral life, on the one hand... 
the, uh, there's a lot of restrictions because this is 70 miles an hour on the highway. We understand that my every thought, speech, and action affects the cosmos, brings Mashiach, affects my family, affects my earlier generations and later generations. Each of us is a child of God in the image of God, and each time I wake up in the morning, I'm deciding yes or no to put on my tefillin, or yes or no to have that negative, jealous, angry thought, or not. Hashem Himself, my Father in Heaven, is watching and cares deeply. Because each of us is an only child. I don't care God has 20 million Cain Yeru only children. If you have many children, you know each one is an only child. We're blessed, thank God, with 11 children. I always say each one is an only child. How do I know? Because you're only as happy as your least happy child. And that's us humans. Imagine God. So stop counting the people. Each of us is an only child. Our thought, speech, and action is critical to God, critical to us, critical to our souls. It's hard to fathom this. It's critical to the universe. It's critical to history. It's, it's real. So on the one hand, wow, you're going down that highway. You've got rules. You've got to watch every move. One doze off, and God forbid, it could be terrible. But wow, what a joyous feeling. This thing matters. It's real. It's not make-believe. Often, you know, you feel people are living wonderful lives, what the world calls very successful. And again, Judaism, the Rebbe, certainly celebrated success, but it's the butter to the bread. It's not the bread. But when someone's just living success and it's about finding the best vacation and the best stuff and toys and another million dollars without any direction or purpose, I often think of the story of the uh, the fellow he's standing on the fifth floor of a tall skyscraper. It's another bad joke. And as he leans out the window, he sees a man flying down from the top of the building, and he says, "How's it going? So far, so good." <laughs> or the pilot gets on and says, "We have bad news and good news. The bad news is we have no idea where we are. We're totally lost. The good news." We're making good time. So you talk to people and say, well, how's life? It's unbelievable. Everything's good. We're making good time. We're moving forward. we got retirement in place. Everything's happening as planned. A little bit of setbacks here and there, but pretty much it's all good. Where are we heading? I don't know. We're making good time, but we're totally lost. I often like to tell people we need a mission statement in life. No successful business is without a mission statement. It just doesn't happen. And when it comes to our own lives, mission statement, just live. Imagine you're getting onto an Amtrak train. It's cross-country. It's, it's first class. You know, business people, they're all dressed up with everything, perfect in the suitcase, and it's going to be an 18-hour trip. And you're going somewhere important, Silicon Valley, that valley, this valley, you're going. you got stuff to do, people to see. And everyone gets on, you're sitting in the, you know, in the quiet Train, I don't know, it's a, everybody's on laptops, everybody's busy, and as you get on, people say, where are you going? I'm going to here, I'm buying this building, I'm buying this thing, I'm, I'm, I'm running for this government. I, we're going. Then there's one guy sitting there, and he's all dressed up, and he's got his big briefcase and everything else, and he's sitting by the window. I say, where are you going? I don't know, but I got my seat. You know, health is very important. Thank God I've been blessed with health in my young life. But just last night I had a dislocated shoulder. I was brought to the ER and they put it back in. So I got a feeling in a tiny way. You know, if I think that health is, health is everything. Because with health you can learn, you can grow. But it can't be the mission statement. 
The mission statement of life can't be. So, so you approach somebody. A rabbi calls him to a store. I got to talk to you. Let's have a mission statement. Where are you going with life? Rabbi, I got my health. Yeah, you're the guy sitting on the train. Where are you going? You got, you got your briefcase. I got my seat. Now you need a seat. A seat is wonderful. But that's where you're going. I want to reiterate. I don't want him to get any ideas. Health is important. I'm saying it on a microphone. <laughs> for all Yidden, for all good people, we need three things. Health, health, and health. But that's what God has to give us. Amen. And to this young lady, right? What's your name again? Remind me. Reba. Health, health, and health. The long line goes into your... But that's God's job. And we help by doing the right things and everything else. Don't eat like this again, all right? <laughs> I mean, it was nice and everything else, but till next year. I suggested to Rabbi Epstein that last night, right after the show, they bring in 300 treadmills into the room and lock the doors. <laughs> so health is critically important. But at the same time, is that the mission statement of life? You hear it so often. You know, I meet friends who I only see from Yom Kippur to Yom Kippur. They say, how you doing, um, you know, Jack? How you doing, Sam? I haven't seen you in a long time. Everything's good. I got my health. And I say, I feel like you're hearing the same story. You're sitting there with your briefcase. Where are you going? You're traveling 18 hours plus country. You're surrounded by people. They're going. They're buying. They're selling. I got my seat. It's not enough. Where's the mission statement? Where am I heading? And that makes life very, very intensely serious and yet joyous. Very restrictive. And yet, that itself brings the joy. You're going down the highway at 90 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour. Every move matters because it's real. Somebody once said to a great uh, musician, as he's tightening the wires, the strings on his violin, and he's tightening it exactly tight. And he says, uh, Maestro, I don't understand. Music is supposed to be transcendent and free and rising up. Oof. Don't let me do that. Sorry about that. I, I'm good, I guess. I got, I got excited. Sorry about that. I apologize. It's all good. Music is supposed to be transcendent and free, and here you're sitting there, you're tying down a thing. And what does the maestro say? The maestro understands music better than anyone. He says, of course, this is not tying you down, it's not restrictions, but you need to focus and you need to follow a certain system tightly so that you can achieve music. God tied it down. It's 432. You've got to light your candle. Make sure you're filling a square and they're black. And make sure that, the, you know, uh, the, the, the Shabbos black is in the right temperature and everything is kosher in the right way and the lulav is straight and the esrog is, is wonderful. But this is not restriction for restriction. This creates music. Go to a symphony and everybody's playing with details instruction. Every single player, there's a hundred musicians or whatever, and they're watching each note. And if they're good, they look like they're having fun. But they're also so focused. They don't miss a beat, quite literally. They say, why the restriction? Just play. It's music. It's transcendence. Yeah, but if you want to reach that, if you want to reach soul and the spirit and spirit in the world of form and matter, you need to focus it and bring out its potential. I remember once learning this lesson at a wedding. 
I'm a Chabad rabbi on Long Island, and the, uh, the regional director of Chabad on Long Island is Rabbi Tuvia Telden. He's essentially our boss. He's the, the head rabbi. This is now uh, 40 different Chabads on Long Island. So going back maybe about 15 years ago, his oldest son was getting married. So this was the first Chabad Long Island wedding. And the wedding was in Crown Heights. He married a girl from Brooklyn. And we all came, and there was a lot of people from Long Island. There were busloads of people. And, um, and it was very special. This was like our chief shliach marrying off his first child. And I'm standing there before the, by the chuppah. You know, after you went to a, how many of us been to a Hasidic wedding? Okay, most of us. And it's very, very serious, and they're covering the bride, everybody's crying. And then you come to the chuppah, and they're walking down, and the music is the Alter Rebbe's niggin, and there's more tears, and there's more, and the bride, the cover, they don't even look at each other. And the woman says to the husband right there, and I am, I'm hearing it, I've never seen such a serious wedding in my life. Like it wasn't a compliment. And I looked at the cup, I didn't say a word. And uh, fast forward three hours. We're on the dance floor in the Brooklyn Jewish Center, in the big hall there, Ole Torah. And the place is rocking and rolling, and they're dancing, and they're trapezing, and they're somersaulting, the men and the women, the Hasidic dancing on the two sides of the room. These people are sweating bullets. They never dance. They never had so much fun in their lives. And during one of the breaks, as God meant it, it was Bashert. I'm hanging out near the middle of the room where the band is by the divider and the machitza, and the same couple come to meet each other. And he says to her, honey, I've never seen such a happy wedding in my life. And finally I couldn't contain myself, and I turned around and I said, friends, I heard both conversations. Don't you realize one depends on the other? If marriage is just random, you know, you get married for a couple of years, give it a shot, you see, maybe trade it in for a younger model, whatever it is. It's just an experiment. It doesn't really matter if I'm married, with whom I'm married. So then it's not so serious, and it's not so happy. It's just nice. It's part of it. It's okay. Maybe we'll find out and check it out. But if marriage is my soulmate, the other half of my soul without whom I'm not complete and I can't fulfill my mission, and we're now coming together, and we please God, we're standing under the chuppah, we're praying for the kinderlach to be healthy and happy and Yiddish and wonderful, and for the two of us to respect each other for a hundred years and to be a positive influence on our surroundings, etc., etc., etc. And we're thinking of generations past and generations coming. This is extraordinarily serious. And the joy that follows. Wow! It's like popping the most intense champagne bottle ever. It's the flow of the holiday, of, a holiday month of Tishrei. Half the month we're intense and serious, and then we break out and start dancing. And people say, oh, is this the reward? It's like spring break. For ten days you prayed and you fasted and everything else. Now party. No, it's really two halves of the same coin. It's intensely serious. We're rejuvenating, reconnecting with God, everything else. It's serious. It's real. It's like the Badekin and the Chuppah. A thought that we have on Yom Kippur by Neila breaks through the heavenly thrones and affects our great-great-grandchildren. Affects a fellow Jew, a soldier on the Israeli front in Israel, whatever. It matters. And once we've reconnected to Hashem and rejuvenating, I love to say this with a J-E-W, the minute Yom Kippur is over, we start to dance. Good yuntif, right? We pull out the sukkah, we pull out the lulav, we dance for nine days. Because the, it's so real. It's so wonderful. Life is so intensely real, therefore it's so intensely Amazing and joyous.
Where am I? Um, so, friends, good story. Good story. Listen to this. My youngest child, his name is Mayor. He's here. He's now four years old, but this is when he was like two. He's the youngest of 11, Kenahara, also Zangezunt. And he's, uh, as his name goes, he's the mayor. He's got four married siblings, and he's in charge. When he was two years old, when he was two years old, he, was, he became an uncle. And that next morning, we went to the preschool in our Chabad house, and his friends in the toddlers said, Hey, Uncle Mayor, that became his name. So he's a piece of work. So... He's two years old at the time. I'm telling you a story from two years ago. It's 4 a.m. I just came through a very long day, and I have a massive day ahead, and I need my sleep. It's 4 a.m. Mayor gets up, and he's scratching. So I go and see him. Tati, ich bin hungerig. I'm hungry. The mayor asks. <laughs> so we go to the kitchen. First I say, you sure? He says, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Was willst du? Was willst du? What do you want? Abreti. It's a bread in our house. Breiti is a code word for a toast with earth balance margarine. <laughs> Open up our fridge, and not, not because of me, but my Los Angeles uh, raised wife. Everything is organic, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But anyway, so so I put up the toast. Mayor sits down by the table. I sit down, you know, facing him. He's waiting for his toast. He's looking at the toaster. It's taking a little too long for his honor's liking. But it finally comes out. I put it on the table in front of him with the margarine and everything else. And he starts to eat. He takes bite by bite. He's in no rush. It's like he doesn't even notice me. I'm staff. <laughs> Somebody said once, what's the difference between your relationship with your pets, whether they're cats or dogs? To the dog, your family. To the cat, your staff. <laughs> He's sitting there. I'm like, staff. <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, he's a two-year-old, whatever. So he's going, but I'm loving it in a way. I finally realized I'm going to be up for the duration, so you might as well enjoy it. How often do I have to sit with my two-year-old and watch him? And he's, he's a shtickle personality, and he's making it with his eyes, and he's eating, and he's taking, and everything else. So I'm engaging. I'm there. I'm loving it. You know, I'm a dad. And um, he finishes the one breiti, no breiti. No, no problem. Put another brighty. Mayor, I do was hungry. Tati to give him more and more brighty. Whatever you need. Give him the second brighty. The toast comes out. He's on the table. The earth balance margarine. Again, piece by piece, taking his time. And I wanted to engage him. I'm telling you, this was a day I'll never forget. I wanted to teach him sharing. And I also wanted to engage him. You know, he's enjoying this. And I'm enjoying him. But I want to sort of connect. And I say, Mayor, can Tati have been a clean-ish-tick-a-la? Can Tati have a small piece? He wasn't happy. <laughs> First he looks at me with the corner of his eye, and then he keeps on going like nothing happened. Mayor, Tati will have a shtickle from dein breiti. Can I have a small piece? And he eyes me, friends. He took off the smallest piece. <laughs> it was an art form. <laughs> And he got it off, and then he didn't give it to me. He, like, pushed it. <laughs> I started to laugh so hard, I woke up the, I could have woken up the whole house. 
I said, you know, I said to myself, I just gave you that bread. Yeah, I give you another one. I got a whole loaf of it. <laughs> For crying out loud. Give me a piece. I want to be with you. Don't you get it? I need your brady. Well, did you buy this? Did you go to work? Is it costing you anything? It's coming from me. Do I want your brady? I want you. I want you to have me in your life. So the way to engage you is give me a stick of brady. Friends, it was unbelievable. <laughs> and I walked away and it's, it was beautiful. It was, it was a lesson. I said, that's we're a mayor, and he's the tati sometimes. And he says, I want something. I want you to give 10% to tzedakah. I want you to give away a half hour in the morning for prayer. I want you to give away a half hour at night for Torah study. I want you to give away Shabbat on whatever level to make it special. I want you to, you know, uh, and we're saying, please, enough. It's fine. I gave you everything. And Hashem is looking down. You think, I... I need this. I gave you everything. I gave you your brady. I'll give you more. I'll give you as much as you want. I'll give you plenty. I want the brady because I want you. I want to be in your life. Du bist mein Kinderach. Kids love their parents. Parents love their kids about 4,000 times more. Hashem is the ultimate parent. I heard from Rabbi David Aaron. Somebody said, how can we speak of God in a personal way? God loves us. God knows us. God is really the universe, as per his talk, which is extraordinary. And I said, yeah, God is, not the, God is everything beyond the universe. But don't you think he has a personality? Whatever we have, where do we get it from? God. So if, God, if we have love, if we have relationships, God has the master relationship with the capital R. So if we love our kids, little tiny us is sitting down there at 4 o'clock in the morning, or by then it's 4.45 in the morning, all I want is a piece of bread because I want to be in his life. God is begging us, give me the 10%. I don't need your money. I breathe into your nostrils every second. I gave you the ideas of how to make that money and I even helped you in ways you don't even know. But I want to be in your life. I want your bread. I want you to notice that I'm here. So friends, as we go back, this is like one of the last talks, right? As we go back, we have a lot of inspiration. One of the keys is to find ways to ground it. You could take a seminar on how to get rich and how to get happy and how to get whatever. And, uh, and then walk away and have so much information and full notebooks. And then you buy the tapes and the CDs and listen to them. And that's wonderful because knowledge is great. Like I said to you earlier, study the code of Jewish law, which I really encourage. Pick up a copy and just read a page every night. Don't worry about doing it now. Just read it. Get to know it. So knowledge is good. But at the same time... Your good friend or advisor would tell you after the five-day get-rich seminar, you have so many tips and ideas, and you're walking on water, you're counting all your future houses. <laughs> Did you walk away with a to-do, with a practical? One thing. That's what the Rebbe would probably say. One thing that I'm not doing yet. Because that'll channel all this wisdom and all this energy. And it doesn't matter what level. One of the rabbis told a story recent on this weekend that somebody asked the Rebbe, I don't have a black coat. My wife doesn't have a shaitel. I don't know. I don't see it happening anytime soon, if ever. But I'm growing and I'm doing Shabbat, whatever I'm doing. Can I consider myself your chassid? And the Rebbe smiled and said, any Jew who is looking, willing to grow from time to time and increase their Yiddishkeit, I'm proud to call them my chassid. 
And when I read that story, it taught me two things. It taught me it doesn't matter where someone's holding. They could be a Yom Kippur Jew, and they take one step. They're going to put on tefillin once a week. They're going to have a Shabbat dinner once a month. And the Rebbe says, I'm proud to call you a chassid of mine, because Hashem is proud. You're growing. Conversely, you can be an FFB, and you can be doing all the, pretty much the laws, and you're plateaued. The Rebbe's stuck with you, but I'm not sure he's proud. It's about growth. It's about life. Let's go back and on the way home, come up with that resolution and, and turn to our shluchim if we have. How many of us are connected to shluchim? A lot of us, right? Or other rabbis or whatever. You want to give them nachas? You know, somebody wants to ask the question, what is the one phrase that you can say to your Chabad rabbi that will make him happier than anything? Somebody said, Rabbi, I got a check for $18,000. So it is this truth to that, not because Chabad rabbis are about money. They're not. I often say, people criticize, you know, Chabad rabbis because they run the budget. So they got to deal with money. The Chabad rabbi is carrying a tremendous burden. And if he or she or the rabbi said is not asking you, that means they need even more. Trust me. If they haven't approached you and you're wondering, how are they keeping this place going? But they don't ask, oh, it must be coming from Kutlarski. It's not. And... If they're not asking, it's because maybe they're a little timid or afraid or they don't want to upset you because they don't want you to, they want you to know it's not about the money because it's really not. Trust me. They can go into other fields, including the rabbit, and have a lot less to worry about. So that is definitely one of the top phrases to tell your Chabad rabbi, I have for you an $18,000 check. And if they don't ask you, they need it even more. But it's not the number one phrase that'll make the rabbi or rabbit sit happy. It's number two. And I'm, I'm one of them. I'm a Chabad rabbi. The number one phrase that will get them to start dancing on a table says, Rabbi, I came back from the retreat. I'm going to start lighting my candles. I'm rapping to fill in. I'm not going to miss a day. Or if you're on the next level, I'm, I'm, I'm biting the bullet. We're going to do Shabbos. I don't know how. Summertime goes on forever. We're going to Toys R Us. It's closing down. We're going to buy all the board games and we're going to sit for 17 hours and do nothing. But it's going to be great. I'm joking, you know, you daven, you go to shul, you have a few l'chaims, you spend time with your family, you read a little book, shluf. But the point being, honestly, that's the greatest nachas, because that's why they went into this business. For us to grow, for them to grow as you grow. Let's walk away with that one resolution. As it says on top of the exit, as it says on top of the exit in the supermarket, count your change before you leave. Let's do that before we leave. Not we get home and we forgot about it and it's a nice inspiration. Let's count our change. And I plan to do it. My wife and I have already been talking. What are we taking away from this? And we have a lot of things, but you need to narrow it down to one or two or three things that you'll really be able to keep it going because that's the only way that it works. And I'm going to close with this. And then I'll open up. We have a few minutes if we want to talk. Um, And by the way, I find it fascinating that this whole thing is taking place in Providence. I really do. I think it's Providence. Because what is Judaism all about? We heard a few different things this weekend. What's Judaism? What's the retreat in one word? Food, right? Or nudge. Or ripple effect. But really, Yiddishkeit, you might say, is Providence. I mean, God knows my name. It's personal. And it's in Providence. I think it's extraordinary. It really, really is.
I was in the hospital last night in the emergency room, and they're all coming in, and I'm telling them, and they all have these uniforms, Providence, you know, Providence Fire Department because the ambulance. And I'm looking at them, and I'm saying, and I say, you know, you guys, are, this is Providence. They said, well, of course it's Providence. What do you mean? <laughs> I once heard that, uh, you know, we know that everything that happens for a reason. Um, and um, I once heard that uh, there was a Chabadnik, Gershon Jacobson, the father of the famous Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Simon Jacobson. And he was hospitalized for a brief time once and uh, as a middle-aged person. And he was very scared and worried. So he, the Rebbe had his secretary, Rabbi Chadikov, call him and tell him, you know everything is by divine providence. You're in the hospital for a reason. So figure out why. Get, bless you. Get the job done and come home. You'll be discharged as soon as you finish your mission. So instead of sitting there feeling bad for himself, he started rapping to fill in if he could. He started talking to the, to the Jewish nurses and doctors or the Gentile nurses and doctors about the seven laws of Noah, about prayer. So I figured I want to get out of here quick. <laughs> you know, none of them were Jewish, but I said, um, we should pray every day. It's providence, and everything else. But I want to close with this fascinating anecdote, I think, that... Uh, some years ago, I'm going to say now, it's five or six years ago on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, I said to myself, you know, the room is full in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. You, know, you can get 1,000 people. On a regular Shabbos, you got 11, right? And I want to reach them. You know, and I inspire them. They're laughing. They're crying. Rabbi, it's unbelievable. We had a good time. We're bringing our friends. But what's the bottom line, you know? And I you preach till you're blue in the face. I want you to do Shabbos and that, that, I had it. I was in the middle of a Yom Kippur Yiska sermon. The place was packed to the gills. It really went well, that particular sermon. Everybody's crying. I know they're going to come over and say, this was such a great sermon. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's the number. It's the top ten. So do me a favor. Can you do one mitzvah, please? And I said to myself, I can't be general. I need to nail it down to something that really small, that all thousand people in the room can do. And I, this wasn't in my script. I said, friends, here's what I want you to do. I want you to say hello to God every morning and night. Get up in the morning, cover your eyes, put your hand over them and say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. That's it. And the same thing before you go to bed. That's all I want. Obviously, if that's all you're ready for. And obviously, then you can do your own meditation, whatever it is, but do it. And hundreds of people did it. I got regards from people until today because it's so easy. And everybody knows the phrase by heart. It's so easy. It was a very rewarding thing, even though it's tiny. But it meant that you're connecting them to Hashem. The relationship is, 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 is dialogue. There was one kid in the room. His name is Gabe. Gabe was then about nine years old or eight years old. And he, we had a kids program, but he always wanted to stay and listen to the sermons. Intelligent guy. We're both Yankee fans and we, we, we get along. So Gabe, and he, he would listen. He would follow the sermons. And Gabe started doing the Shema. Gabe's father, by the way, is here with us for the retreat. He and I have traveled different retreats. He goes to Washington for APAC, for this, that, and the other. And in the car, every night, it's, it's 9 o'clock at night, and we're in Washington, D.C., and Gabe calls. And he says, and his father says, are you ready? I'm ready. Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Elokeinu, Hashem, He does it with his father when he can on the phone if he's not there in person. It was extraordinary. Gabe does this every morning and night. He's 11, he's 12, he's 13, he's a popular kid, he's a normal kid. This is gorgeous. So now he's getting ready for his bar mitzvah. And we have our meeting, mom, dad, and Gabe. And I'm trying to get him to do tefillin. I say, Gabe, I want you to take on the tefillin. It moves it to a new level. 
and you already do the Shema. He says, oh, Rabbi, I haven't missed a day. And I cover my eyes, and then I give God my own prayer. So I wanted to create a conversation. I said, Gabe, why do you think it is? So when we say the Shema, we have to close our eyes and cover it with the right hand. And I'm sure he would say, I don't really know, and I'd give him the whole explanation. It's concentration, ta ta there's nothing else. And he says, I know why. I said, what? He says, I close my eyes and I cover up my right hand to realize there's nothing more important to me than God and there's nothing more important to God than me. I got out of my chair, I ran around the table and I hugged him. I almost got sued. (laughs) It was like, I said, you got it! This is the problem with us Jews. We all know the first part of the phrase, especially if we consider ourselves religious or spiritual or connected. There's nothing more important to us than God. Well, what else should be? No, that's not enough. There's nothing more important to God than you. Remember, when you have a lot of children, it doesn't matter. Each one is an only child. You're only as happy as your least happy child. Each time we take on that mitzvah and we do it or we don't do it, it's 80 miles an hour down the highway. It's serious but it's joyous. You're tightening the strings on the violin, not to make you limited, but to bring out your music, to transcend and reach your potential in a deeper way, in a limitless way, albeit through the channels of the mitzvahs that God gave us. So rather than R&R being restriction and repetition, it's re-energizing and rejuvenating and any other re that you like. Let's go out there and uh, take on that one mitzvah, that two mitzvahs, whatever it is, but it should be realistic. And we can actually do it. If we're not going to do tefillin every day, let's resolve to do tefillin once a week, every Sunday. Not just once a week, that's not good. Every Sunday. If we're not going to do every Shabbos, a, a Shabbos dinner, or we're not going to be Shoma Shabbos every Shabbos, but we're ready to put our feet in the, dip our feet in the water, once a month, we're Shoma Shabbos. Do it. Hashem loves us. He doesn't want any everything. Think about your kids. You want everything? You just want a little piece of the bright. A little piece. And then we'll find out that the repetition, the restriction, the R&R reminds us that we matter. And we're not grasping and gasping for air, but we're actually a fish in water. I got five minutes. Anyone wants to talk, ask? Go ahead. So, I go to my local union a week, and um, and I think one of the one of the issues I've got, I mean, I'm having more comfortable, but I feel like it's so much deeper. I mean, the times from really the times start from Odu to that Akre to the Shabbat to Tachanah to the very end, especially Monday to Thursday, the tour and everything. It's so much deeper, and and the word experience is a reading is so fast because they have to, to get to all the Hebrew. I can't possibly imagine that they know everything they're everything they're reading and I usually end up slowing myself down I'm like, you know, I I'd rather read a couple of times, especially especially when it's coming down and focus on what I'm reading than like read it a hundred miles an hour. I agree with you. I agree with you. I suggest this. I suggest that um, you, you have a, you have a rabbi that you work with closely. Yeah. 
whoever you're comfortable with, whoever will be honest with you and, 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 and suggest what's better for you, have a conversation with them. But the general response, I would say, is do a hybrid. Mix it. Prayer works in English. God understands English, too. However, there is value to the prayer in Hebrew, especially the Shema and the Amidah, and more critically, the first three and the last three sections of the Amidah should be in Hebrew. So break it up. Break it up and slow it down and uh, do your own thing. Don't necessarily keep up. Join the minion, perhaps, for the Shema and the Amidah. And the Amidah is the one thing I don't think you should cut away. Maybe do the first three and last three in Hebrew and do the rest in English or do it all in Hebrew if you could. But take as long time as you want. But uh, all the other prayers, pick and choose maybe. The other thing in general, if there's, if there's people in this room who fit the category of the other people in that minion, who are, you know, a teacher used to say, the first phrase of the prayer, how does it go? It really says, But who has time? So the truth is that we should slow it down a little bit and say every word, but to have full concentration on each passage on a regular weekday, and even on Shabbos, is almost impossible. The previous Rebbe said in Yiddish, make a bend in the prayer book, which means from time to time, another prayer that I focus in on. Not only I pray it more diligently, but I study up on it. There's great books that's put out by Kahat called My Prayer. I think it's two volumes. And it explains the details of every prayer. There was a seminar here yesterday by Rabbi Friedman from Florida, and one of my fellows attended, and he said, it's great. It took us an hour just to study one passage of the Don't Alarm. It's so much meaning. But how can I do it to all the pages? And for that reason, I think the previous rabbi is saying, make a knach in the Siddur. Find uh, the meaning of Adon Olam. And then a week later, you'll, you'll make a new class for yourself once a week. And you don't need a teacher for this. It's, it's on the net. It's in the book. Study another passage. And over time, you'll find out you know the meaning of five or ten passages. Maybe you'll do those more intently. Maybe you'll do them in Hebrew. But by all means, you've got to be a little more freer with yourself because Hashem wants you to be in the moment. Try to keep the structure in the sense that you, you move in order, don't go back and forwards, but you can skip, and your rabbi will tell you what's the part you shouldn't skip, and what's the part you should try to do in Hebrew. And even when you do in Hebrew and you don't understand a word sometimes, the kavana, the intention is, I know these words are magical, that's a kavana too. By the way, there's a, there's a whole other side to this conversation. I focus the restriction being that God gives us the channels to reach Him. There's another whole side. As a human being, one of the biggest problems of society today, is that people were never taught to say no to themselves. So if the kid gets everything they want, when they want it, how do they say no later to a crooked business deal that will destroy them, or to the tempting secretary who will destroy them, or whatever? How do they say no to anything? They have zero control. They're weaker than weak. And Judaism builds in the system. That's not the real reason for the mitzvot, but it's brought down as an additional reason by some holy sources, Torah sources. A Torah Jew is in charge of themselves. As it says in Perkei Avot, who is strong? One who controls their inclination, one who's in charge of their domain. If you're able to be in Paris, or you're able to and to say, no, I can't have this, I'll have this. If you're in an airport, you know, I joke it around with my people, I'm to, you know, you're taking a connecting flight. I recently had to go to Australia for a family wedding. And uh, connecting flights and delays, and uh, everybody is, today we have restaurants in every airport. There's four different restaurants, and you're sitting there with your banana. And then you pull out your second banana. But you know what? I'm in charge. And in a sense, it makes you, it gives a happiness and a contentment. You know that you get to Melbourne, you're going to go to that five-star restaurant. Anyone else? Um, I wanted to uh, add something about the money. Uh, 
question. And that's also to remember that the Chabad rabbi is getting people to do mitzvot when they're giving this money. So, you know, so it looks like, oh, they're looking for money. But once again, it's, it's another, you know, it's another expression of our Chabad, you know, uh, philosophy. And uh, to get people to do mitzvah. Yeah. Kind of a tricky way to get them to do mitzvah. Right. The Rebbe didn't just say to mitzvah up to felon and he said the mitzvah up to daka. You're doing a favor for people. It's, it's very true. And when you do it, you start to love it. You start to love it. I mean, my wife and I made an account that we put our tithing in. And, you know, we don't make a lot of money, but we make a living. And we have a separate account. It feels so good. You know, invariably, we're giving away five or $10,000 a year. And it comes out of that account. It's not even ours. It's Hashem. He gave me ten percent. He gave me hundred percent. He asked me back for ten. I'm able to give out ten thousand dollars. If I find out that there's a cause, or there's a widow, or whatever it is, or or a, a friend who opened a new chabad who needs a thousand dollars or a hundred dollars, wow! I can imagine people in this room who are able to give serious charity. It's got to feel awesome. And I'll tell you something. For over the many years, you know, I'm on shlichus twenty-seven years. It took me a long time to be comfortable asking people for money and realizing that you're actually doing them a favor. And especially people who didn't grow up with it. People who didn't grow up, you know, the more traditional you are, um, I find that people give in a whole different level. Uh, the more traditional they are, I mean, it's like a whole different thing. And there's people in my community very wealthy, but very, very secular, not even reform, you know. And they love me. They'll, they'll, give, they'll give a meal to a poor man any time, and it'll make him so happy. They have such hearts, but they never got into tzedakah, so I'd go take a loan. So for 20 years, I'm taking loans and giving back loans. And these people are very wealthy. And just last year, we did a mortgage cleanup. And I had no choice to go to, but to go to everyone. And I went to these same people. And they came through with large sums because we said it's a one-time thing. This fellow who never gave me a donation in 27 years, just loans, gave $260,000, God's name. He was the lead gift for the campaign. He felt so good because we cleaned up the mortgage permanently and whatever. And guess what? In the last... 18 months since then, every month he gives me his credit card, $5,000. I almost feel like saying, Jack, what's wrong? <laughs> he cares that he always cared, but he didn't understand that it makes sense that money from my pocket should go to your pocket. But when he finds out that it feels good and it's actually part of the design, you know, 10%, 20%, whatever, wow. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and torahcafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.